I think it's human nature to feel, what can I do when you're in a situation that is so overwhelming? I mean, it's so absolutely overwhelming. And my mother, you know, a very um, practical Midwest woman, she told us three things, not in a row, but, you know, in different experience, she would say, be who you are. Don't worry about what anybody else has, what anybody else does, just be who you are. And the second is use what you have. You know, she'd be cooking a cake and she wouldn't have an ingredient, so she'd just improvise, you know, find something that was similar, use what you have. And the other, the other one is, the most powerful is do what you can. And at one point, Do What You Can was a working title of my book. Hello, you are listening to the Late Bloomer Living podcast, where we are reimagining and redefining what it means to be in midlife, where we are gathering energy, momentum, and excitement for our next chapter via candid conversations with other midlifers about their own pivots, pitfalls, and triumphs. I'm Yvonne Marchese, your host, and I'm so happy you're here. Adulting can be hard, but you don't have to go it alone. I created this podcast to give you inspiration and let you know you're not alone in feeling stuck in midlife. Both men and women are welcome here, but if you are a woman, I also invite you to join our Midlife Uprising community for women, where we're making waves and reimagining what it means to age. Being part of this community for women will remind you on a regular basis that you're not too old and it's never too late to do that thing you've been thinking about. You can find more information at latebloomerliving.com forward slash community, and I hope to see you there. Hello, my friend. Oh, do I have a fascinating story for you this week. Do you ever find yourself watching the news and feel anger and grief bubble up inside you? (laughs) Honestly, I can't imagine a person who hasn't felt that lately. If you're like me, you might feel like it's all too much. If you're like me, you might ask yourself, what can I do? But this is not a hopeless story. This is a story about the power of love, a mother's love. A mother's love that cannot be contained within her own family. This is the story of Mother Goose. Not the Mother Goose from the nursery rhymes, a real-life Mother Goose. I'm going to say a badass Mother Goose. It's the story of a woman named Jane Olson, a mother of three who jumped in to volunteer humanitarian work, taking a flight to Russia the day she dropped off her youngest kid at college. And she never looked back. Jane ended up working as a volunteer for many decades to promote peace and justice through international rights organizations, and she even ended up becoming chair of the International Board of Human Rights Watch from 2004 to 2010, and she served as co-chair of the Women's Refugee Commission. Jane is now 80 years old, and she has written a memoir titled World Citizen, Journeys of a Humanitarian. I'm so honored to have had the chance to talk to Jane about what it was like to find this calling in midlife, to work with refugees in the middle of war-torn countries, and why she was urgently compelled to write this book now. So without further ado, here's Jane Olson. Let's go. 
Hi, Jane. Thank you so much for being with me today. Thank you. I'm grateful for the invitation and really looking forward to our conversation. Thank you. I'm I'm honored to have you here today. I have your book, which is a hefty book. Mm-hmm. It's um, high quality and, paper. Yeah. And it's not just hefty in, in the weight and the size of it, but, uh, but the topic and what you wrote about. Um, I guess my first question for you, I mean, the title of the book is World Citizen, Journeys of a Humanitarian. And in reading the book and, and having spoken to you once before, I feel like the beginning of all this started as you were approaching empty nester time. But I ha- I want to go back to a little a little bit before that or wherever it's appropriate because I'm I'm curious about when you started to feel the stirrings of wanting to make a difference as a humanitarian. Like when did that start to come into your consciousness and when did you know when did you feel that urge? Well, I think I've always had it. I mean, I really feel that for someone as empathetic and compassionate as I am, whether it's a blessing or a curse, (laughs) you feel it as a child. And I grew up in a small town in rural western Iowa, which is very central to um, the themes in my book, because I tell uh, the chapters have uh, vignettes about what I learned or experienced in my childhood that um, relate to the experiences I'm having in these uh, faraway places. But, you know, we we had multi-generations mixed. Um, I didn't recognize poverty. Certainly there was poverty in my hometown, but everybody seemed pretty much the same and homogeneous. But some people suffered just grievous calamities in their lives. And my mother would take me to the hospital to visit people. We visited... Uh, they called it the old folks home, the retirement home, where you know I saw people strapped in their wheelchairs. Um, I, I knew of a couple of children in my hometown who were adopted because their parents had died or had been, who knows, maybe sent off to prison for abusing them. But you know, there were a few differences and few opportunities to you know, contra blessings, so to speak, but also to understand that other people need our help and deserve our help. But when we moved to California, and I had three young children, I had two babies when we moved here. In 1968, I had an infant and a two-year-old. And um, we joined a very progressive Episcopal church in Pasadena, All Saints Episcopal Church. And they had, that became the biggest impact on my life. It was a church that um, had a very strong reputation for international and domestic peace and justice initiatives and um, a large congregation. Um, largely, these organizations were um, run by lay people that were, you know, they would be um, begun, initiated by the church, and then lay people like me would take them over. So we had a homeless shelter. We had um, an AIDS service center, the largest in Southern California that started at our church. We had a family clinic that gave free reproductive health care to poor women 
and women yeah. that uh, otherwise would be deprived of, of getting that. That is a very so progressive many, church. So many other initiatives like that. Yeah. But the thing that really impacted me was in 1979, um, we combined in an ecumenical movement with a, a synagogue in West Los Angeles and um, to focus on the nuclear arms race issue, the Cold War with the Soviet Union. And I think I was 36 or 37, I was asked if I would put together a major conference called Reversing the Arms Race that brought experts from all over the country to speak about the incredible danger of the nuclear arms race and the way it depletes our society, our economy, but also poses such a threat to life on earth. So that was my first big introduction to um, a major international issue. I still had three young children to raise. Yeah, how old were they at this point? The youngest was seven or eight. Oh, wow. And the oldest was middle school, 12. Wow. 13. And you, you were a stay-at-home mom, right? Very much a stay-at-home mom. My husband had a very, very busy career. You know, we didn't have help in the house. <laughs> I, I kind of did everything. I had a lot of energy and a, a lot of enthusiasm. You know, I did it gladly, but I look back now and think, who was that crazy woman? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm thinking I had I only had two kids, and at that age, I was completely overwhelmed. So I'm I'm amazed at what you've done. Um, yeah. And you studied journalism and and photography, photojournalism, or what was your study? Uh, yes, I I uh, I went to the University of Nebraska um, from Iowa. You know. We were on the west side of Iowa. My dad grew up in Nebraska and wanted his daughters to go to the University of Nebraska, and we all three did. I majored in history, um, English, and uh, journalism, the School of Journalism, which is now a major college of journalism and mass communication. And um, I, my favorite class was investigative reporting, and I also took a lot of photography classes. And when we came to Pasadena, I continued to study photography at Pasadena City College. You know, this, California has these wonderful city colleges that are very, very inexpensive tuition. And, you know, I took a lot of classes there. Wow. I had worked for several newspapers while, you know, in the early days, even in high school and college. And then after I got married, I worked at a newspaper in Michigan and um, did both reporting and photography. So wow. I had some experience with it. Yeah. But mainly I was a mom and, and my, most of my activities when the children were young were focused on their needs. I realized very young that being a mother, raising children is the one thing you don't get another chance to do. And I saw some of my friends who had been busy professional mothers with uh, nannies and um, I saw them really feeling a lot of regret and guilt. You know, they're kind of, kind of never happy they were home. They thought they should be working. If they were working, they thought they should be home. Yeah. The ultimate struggle. And, I mean, you, you yeah. kind of feel like you can't win either way. Right. I know. So, yeah. you know, we had three children before we had two cars. We didn't, we lived a fairly modest life raising the children in the early days. And I'm so glad for that because, you know, they've all turned out great and are thriving and I now have eight grandsons. <laughs> no, it's amazing. You know, when I, I was looking, you had sent when you, you know, got the copy of your book and you so, so sweet to include some of your recent 
um, Christmas cards. So I actually got to see these. You have to see it because you can't strapping, believe. <laughs> strapping uh, eight grandsons. They're, They're all in college. One's graduate. Two, well, actually, two have graduated already. But uh, they're mostly all football players. Wow! Yeah, they, they look other. like big. They look like big guys. Yeah, they came um, in all together. They were eight boys, four years apart. <laughs> there was two sets one, of twins. The, yeah, that's incredible. Two sets of twins from from yeah. two two different kids of yours, right? Mm-hmm. Not not within the same family. No. <laughs> Goodness, no, two that would be mothers. a lot. And the, tw- the sets of twins are four years apart, but they came in with cousins like two weeks apart and two months apart. It's amazing. Wow. So they're all like siblings in a way, it sounds like. Yeah. Um, I was looking at one of the cards and and something struck me as I was looking at the bottom of this card with a with a little note to your to your grandsons. And it echoed something that I had read at the back of the book that was a letter to your kids. Mm-hmm. And that is the quote that says, love is the most powerful energy in the universe. Yes. And isn't, I'm so glad you picked up on that. Um, It's strange, but it takes a lot more courage to speak and to write about love than it does about hate and fear and all of the ways we use to polarize people in the other you know we want to be taken seriously and i've worked in the world of you know i chaired human rights watch and a number of of substantial humanitarian organizations and other organizations i work with academics all the time and we want to be taken seriously so to speak about love is considered soft or Mm wishy-washy and you know when i was working in in the field with traveling with humanitarian organizations i was doing the work of a investigative reporter in some of the hardest places i've ever been you know refugee settlements where people have suffered every kind of abuse that you can imagine abuse and loss and terror and are living with so little and you know they have the moment that's all they have really and to be there with them and I had someone once say that that's uh, that's soft reporting. You know, the the real tough stuff, the hard macho stuff, is being in the field where the tanks and guns and bombs are. That's the hard reporting. And um, <laughs> I, I thought to myself, yeah, like it's it's soft having the babies, right? <laughs> I right. I was going to say I, I hardly disagree. The hardest thing is to sit with someone and really be present as a caring, mm-hmm. loving person. And that is what and, struck me as I read the book um, was that was somehow your 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 superpower or your talent. Um, I want to so let's back up a little bit because. Um, I want people to understand you when you're, when you're, it was when your youngest daughter went off to college, right. That you got on a plane almost at the same time. Yes. And headed off to. Well, my, my first journey actually was in 1984. And that was, um, five years before my youngest child graduated high school, I went down to Nicaragua and El Salvador during the Contra Wars, where the Sandinistas 
and the um, US-backed Contras um, were, were fighting each other. It was a proxy war between the US and the Soviet Union. We used third world countries because we couldn't fight each other. And it was an extraordinary journey. I was in a small group, just uh, four people. I was by far the youngest. And we drove all over the country and looked at uh, some of the sites that the US was saying were uh, evidence of the Sandinistas exporting revolution. And you know they were just these small, like little canoes. <laughs> they said there were rifles in the canoes. You know the oars looked a lot, lot like rifles. But there were um, experiences that I had meeting people there that where I found I really had a um, a special gift and a a love of being with people quietly and hearing their stories. And I had people share with me some of the most amazing experiences. I wrote them all down and they went into a report that was shared um, in a small circle. But I discovered um, that's what I wanted to do with the rest of my life. My, I went back from that trip to the high school graduation of my oldest daughter. And exactly 10 years later, she graduated from um, with a master's in international studies, went to the World Bank and was assigned country head for Nicaragua. And my <laughs> oldest daughter <laughs> went to Nicaragua and she was driving around, you know, giving out hundreds of millions of dollars for the reconstruction of Nicaragua. Things like that, that happened in my life that are so coincidental that, you know, kind of told me I was on the right path. Wow. But at the time, I realized I had to give my younger two children as much time and attention as I gave my older child. And I didn't want to, uh, I didn't want to miss, you know, it was great fun being with children and sharing their lives. The day she left for college, her father took her on a plane. The very same day I was on the plane to Moscow. And that was my first trip to Ukraine. I had just a, such an amazing time, but I've never regretted taking those years. I would say that the uh, the heart of my work and almost everything in my book began after age 50. Wow. Which is that's pretty so, That's so, so hopeful to me. I'm 54 right now. I'm just getting to the point where it's going to be empty nest and I'm going, what's next? What's yeah. next? You know, and I think about, you know, what you what you said about going down to Nicaragua at that time and knowing that that's what you wanted to do with the rest of your life and and then going, OK, but hold on, let's let's finish the current job at hand. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. Yeah. Well, I was also doing a lot of volunteer work in the community and I love that. And I loved being a mother. It's not like I felt I was sacrificing anything. Mm -hmm. I loved every part of being a mother and I love supporting my husband, husband's career. But the other thing, Yvonne, is I really feel that um, all those years of preparation and being in the community, you know, we traveled a fair amount, but, you know, to Europe and not to war zones, um, they were all preparing me for what became my career, I wouldn't have ever anticipated it. But when you say what is next, I just wanna to suggest to you that you pay attention to the invitations that come your way. I, I didn't go seeking any of this. And every 
every single instance, every chapter in my book, I was asked to do this. I had a choice. And every time I said yes, I mean, this whole world opened up. Mm. And it was like, you know, building blocks of gaining confidence, gaining experience, um, gaining a reputation as being someone who cares. Hey, we're going to take a quick break here because I want to let you know that this podcast episode is brought to you by Midlife Cues. Are you looking to live life more intentionally and grow personally as you get older? The Midlife Cues newsletter is the perfect solution for you. Every Sunday, you can open up your email to find a weekly newsletter filled with carefully researched resources and tools to help you live your best life. It's written and published by Lou Blazer, who left a successful career in corporate America and now focuses on helping midlifers be truly happy and feel fulfilled in the second half of their lives. You can subscribe today at midlifecues.com. I'm thinking about a little bit later on when you went to uh, Yugoslavia with Catherine O'Neill and this gets me a little melty to, to, so forgive me if I get a little um, teary. You ended up at the Resnick refugee camp and you held yourself back from going in because you weren't ready to face the women and the, the hardships that they'd been through. So you mm-hmm. took a moment and sat outside with the children right. and uh, and noticed that they weren't playing and I, I'm going to let you take the story from here. Well, that experience is really um, very insightful. I'm glad you chose that because that was my first trip into the former Yugoslavia and it came right after my 50th birthday. I was at my 50th birthday. My husband had a surprise party for me and Catherine O'Neill, who had just founded the Women's Refugee Commission was one of my guests and she said, and I was involved with Human Rights Watch at the time, she asked me if I would go with her to the former Yugoslavia. She said, there are reports coming out that this war they're calling the ethnic cleansing of Bosnia involves um, rape of women, that rape is being used as a weapon of war against the women and girls. And I want you to go with me and um, we need to treat this as a war crime and a a human rights offense, and uh, your network would be very helpful. So I went with her. Well, at, in this first camp, Resnick, there were thousands and thousands of women and children. 80% of refugees in every situation are women and children because the men and boys get killed or they have to stay and fight. We're seeing that in Ukraine now. And I felt the trauma, the pain, and the suffering. I felt it in the air when we got there, these, you know, um, barracks, wood-framed barracks with no insulation, concrete floors. It was a camp that I think had been used as a summer military training camp for the Yugoslav army. And it was now filled with women and children. And Catherine wanted to charge right in and start interviewing the women and see if she could find any girls who had been raped and get their stories. I just wasn't ready for that. But I looked outside, it was, it was October, it was cold, and there was a bare ground with um, clotheslines 
above it and children were sitting on the ground. I'd spent a lot of time with children and I'd seen a lot of playgrounds. This was not typical behavior of children. They were sitting alone, their backs to each other, their heads down or looking straight ahead. Um, they looked like zombies, like mm -hmm. they were sitting up asleep or something. And I always have felt comfortable with, with children. I helped start an art program here in Pasadena that served uh, the whole of Los Angeles area public schools. And so I carry in my backpack always jumbo boxes of crayons and paper and some children's picture books and so on because I love kids so much. So I just sat down on the ground and I took out a piece of typing paper and a couple crayons and I started drawing, you know, on the dirt. It wasn't a smooth surface and I'm not an artist. But um, I just made a, a square and then put a triangle on top of it like a house. And, you know, pretty soon a couple kids came came over and looked over my shoulder to see what I was doing. And um, I handed paper and crayons to them. I didn't say a word, didn't look at them. I just handed out paper and crayons and they sat down. And pretty soon there was this big circle of kids around me, all of them sitting in a circle facing inward with paper and crayons. And um, they first copied, most of them copied my primitive house. And then one little girl put in um, a dog and a tree and a boy next to me put in a very good drawing of a small man with a big gun. Mm -hmm. And I looked at that, I mean, it looked like an automatic rifle, an AR-15, and the man had a beard. And I thought, I mean, that looks like a um, Serbian militia gunman that he had experienced that. The girl, a couple, a couple down from me, asked for the red crayon. I mean, she picked up the red crayon and she put fire coming out of the house that she had drawn mm. red flames mm. and the kids you know started noticing what each other were doing and they drew these scenes that were um very good replicas of what they'd experienced with the bombing shelling burning killing in the village that they'd come from and it was just extraordinary and you know it was it got to be so tense that I started thinking, you know, kids are supposed to have fun. So I took some of the typing paper and I made paper airplanes and started flying paper airplanes and teaching the kids just to have fun and loosen up. And, um, but something happened in that circle of their realizing that each of them had had similar experiences and it bonded these kids in a kind of community. Now I could have taken some of their pictures because what the kids were drawing maybe could be used in a, a criminal court as evidence of war crimes. But I realized that everything had been taken from these kids. They had lost their childhoods, they'd lost their homes, they'd lost their toys, their pets, everything. So I had them put their names on it and I took photos of some of the pictures and of course they got to keep them. And I, I hoped that they would in the future continue to communicate and support each other and, and feel that they have a right to play and be children. Um, that was the best I could do at that camp, but it was a natural thing. And, you know, sometimes it's those small things that make a huge difference.
Yeah. And, um, it's making me think too of the next camp that you went to and you met uh, Mila, I think was her name. Yes. The mm -hmm. teenager. Do you yes. want to tell that story is like the continuation of yes. this? Yes. Well, this is, I'm glad you like that chapter. It's one of my favorite chapters and one of the hardest to write. It was called, the chapter title is The Art of War. So we went on uh, to um, another area, maybe 20, 30 miles away that had an, another um, huge gathering of refugees. Most of the people there had come from Sarajevo. Sarajevo was the capital city of Bosnia that was under siege for a thousand days, just horrendous. I have a whole chapter on what happened in Sarajevo. But these are people who got er out early just as the roadblocks were being put up and they got out. Some of them were had divided families. You know, they couldn't get all their family members out. But again, there I it's always about the people, Yvonne. I met this one young woman who was just um well and she recognized in me. I have a mother energy. And you know, yeah, your nickname became Mother Goose, right? Mother Goose. Mother Goose. Mother Goose all over Ukraine. I got that nickname in Ukraine. <laughs> but this young woman named Mila, um, she had escaped Sarajevo in a family car, and her father had um, been detained. And I mean, she had a pretty traumatic story of of getting out of Sarajevo. And she'd come to this um, this refugee camp, and she seemed again like a loner. She hadn't really made connections. But you know, as I talk about refugee camps i say the and the wounds were raw and recent and you feel that and you don't want to pick a scab off a raw recent wound i just you know tried to be with her but i asked her you know her story i was working with a very sensitive interpreter and uh, she had graduated what we would call high school and she wanted to be, a, she was going to go to college. She wanted to be an art major, and um, I thought, aha, these she could be so helpful to the children here. I just had come from Resnick, where it had that experience with opening up children through art, and I told her about that. And I said, would you ever consider working with children and helping them, you know, through the medium of art? And she said, well, we don't have any materials here. You know, we don't have any paper. I don't have any paint. I don't have any even pencils. And I said, well, we can get those sent out. The International Rescue Committee will bring out you know, supplies that we're going to ask for when we go back. But I said, what about just even using a stick and drawing in the ground? There's so much you can do without needing formal materials. And you can make little sculptures using found objects, you know, stones and whatever. And she rather liked that idea. And so I think she was going to start an art program there. Incredible. I think one of the reasons that this particular part of your story um, struck me was because of the instinctual reaction that you had to those kids being outside and, and sitting there like zombies. And I love the way you approached it by just sitting there and drawing them in without inviting them really just doing your thing and then they get curious and it was so instinctual from having been a mother you know yes that's right my children had a second grade teacher who taught me two wonderful uh, lessons she said when there's chaos in the room and shouting and and you can't get control she said 
the best thing to do is just whisper. <laughs> the Isn't kids will crazy? quiet down because they want to hear what you're saying. It's so crazy. Yeah. And what what I what I loved is that you talked about this may have been in your epilogue to trust your instincts and experience to overcome feelings of inadequacy. Yes. Yeah. Well, I think I think it's human nature to feel what can I do when you're in a situation that is so overwhelming. I mean, it's so absolutely overwhelming. And my mother, you know, very um, practical Midwest woman, she told us three things, not in a row, but, you know, in different experience, she would say, be who you are. Don't worry about what anybody else has, what anybody else does, just be who you are. And the second is use what you have. You know, she'd be cooking a cake and she wouldn't have an ingredient. So she'd just improvise, you know, find something that was similar, use what you have. And the other, the other one is the most powerful is do what you can. And at one point, do what you can was a working title of my book. Interesting. I have to tell you, one of my favorite quotes is ascribed to Teddy Roosevelt, but it, he got it from Squire Bill Widener. I don't know if you're familiar with this one, but it's I'm something sure. like do what you can where you are with what you have. Oh, or really? Maybe, yes. Or it may be do Teddy what Roosevelt? you can with what you have where you are. Yeah, it, it was Teddy Roosevelt, but he was referencing um, the a quote from another, per, it was in his autobiography and he was actually referencing a quote from somebody else and his name was Squire Bill Widener, but everybody attributes it to, to Teddy Roosevelt. Yeah. But well, that's good practical advice. There are days, Jane, when I walk around and I just repeat that over and over to myself like a little mantra. <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah, well, one of the later chapters in the book really is exemplary of that and that is... Um, the child soldiers of Uganda, mm. and which is probably the most painful, heartbreaking experience I had in all of the of all of my adventures into these dark and dangerous places. There was a community of refugees, about fifty thousand people, who had. Um, all been victimized by the Lord's Resistance Army. Have you heard of the Lord's Resistance Army? Yeah. Their MO was to um, go into villages, kidnap the children, girls and boys, and they would um, make the children kill their parents mm. and burn their, their houses, you know, their primitive houses, mud huts, shacks, whatever, thatch roofed huts so that they would have no place to go to. And they stole children as young as six and seven. The boys would be ma made to fight and kill and to carry the guns and the heavy equipment, small as they were, and the girls would be made to carry the, the food and the bedding, and they would be wives to the soldiers, you know, sex slaves, yeah. very young, starting very young girls. So we were in this um, camp in... Um, Gulu in northern Uganda, where there were 50,000 in internally displaced people, people whose homes had all been um, destroyed and and um, this war had been going on for 20 years, more than 100,000 people had been killed and they couldn't ever find, there's a 
international effort to find Joseph Comey and the Lord's Resistance Army, and they'd always disappear into the jungle, and they they were never found. But they had left, uh, they just devastated all of northern Uganda. So I asked, were there any boys, since I was a grandmother at that point of four boys, were there any boys who had recently come out of the jungle that I wanted to meet boys, uh, soldiers who had returned? And um, one of the guides who actually was a returned boy soldier himself, he was a blind man, and he was there working as a social worker in the camp. He said, well, there are some teenage boys, four of them, on the edge of town, like a mile away from this camp. They won't come in, but they're recently recovered from the jungle, and they won't talk to anyone, and they're just living out there by themselves um, in makeshift shelter. I said, that's that's where I want to go. So we walked out there, and um, you know, my guide using a white cane, he was blind, and um, I told him that I saw an, a, a young teenager look like about 13 or 14, sitting on a log ahead of us. So we went up to him, and um, my guide, whose name was Joseph, started talking to him in Swahili, told him his story of having served as a child soldier and been um, beaten and blinded because of beating. And um, But the boy just sat on this log. He would, didn't look at him. He just look, looked at the ground. He wouldn't look at me. So I went to the other end of the log, and I sat down, and I faced in the same direction as he was, and tried to look at him. And we just sat there in silence for quite some time. And then um, I had my backpack on, and I reached into my backpack, and I pulled out a picture of my four grandsons. They were ranged in age from four to ten at that time, blonde, blue-eyed boys. And I took out the photo and set it down beside the boy. And um, he glanced at it and then looked straight ahead. And when I was, when he thought I wasn't looking, he looked at it again. Um, I'm sure they looked very foreign to him, <laughs> these blonde white boys. Um, but we just sat there and I didn't try to um, interfere with whatever was going on in his mind. But it was really, really hot. And so I reached into my backpack and pulled out a, a square paperback children's picture book that I was carrying and I started fanning myself with it. And um, I looked at the book and realized this was the perfect book. It was the story of Ferdinand the Bull. <laughs> Ferdinand the Bull was my son's favorite book. I read it to him over and over and over again. But the pictures really tell the story. It was a story of a young bull whose father was a very famous fighting bull in Spain in the bull ring. And all of his friends were... Uh, were practicing learning how to be fighting bulls themselves and they wanted him to play with them and they kept butting up against him and trying to make him fight 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 and all ferdinand wanted to do was smell, smell the, the flowers, flowers. <laughs> he loved the flowers <laughs> and so um mm -hmm. i thought how perfect is that for this boy who's been made to fight his whole life mm -hmm. and so i just sort of intuitively set the book down beside the picture of my boys and I got up to leave. Now, not a word had been exchanged 
Not a glance had been exchanged between us, but I got up and started uh, to walk away. And I got uh, a few feet away and I turned around and looked at him and he had picked up the book and he looked at me. And in just a moment, we exchanged a look and I said to him, I love you with just my eyes and left those two things with him. And what I wrote is that I hoped um, that boy would have the courage, ability, um, and desire to come home to himself. I mean, these kids were really out of their bodies. They weren't mm -hmm. in their bodies. They'd had so much trauma. They can't, you can't contain that in a child's body. But that I hoped that they would reach out to each other and together um, help to heal. And that someday they would be able to um, create families and recreate their communities and their societies. So everything had been destroyed. But that book was kind of the vehicle to communicate what words weren't, weren't possible or necessary. And, um, and then I realized, you know, that's an example of use what you have and do what you can. <laughs> yes. I have two questions that come to mind, which is how do you um, put yourself in the situation of that, that witnessing of such difficult situations. And then on the, on the back end of that, my question is with everything that you've seen, how do you hold on to the idea, the oh so hopeful idea that love is the most powerful energy in the universe? Well, I know that the love is the most powerful energy. And I know, you know, as Martin Luther King said, the arc of history will bend towards all that is good and just and right and loving. I believe that. Um, I've seen it. I feel it. But meanwhile, there's some pretty horrendous experiences. Um, I should mention that um, going into the kinds of places that I've described, it's not for everyone. I always was traveling with uh, some of the best, most effective international human rights and humanitarian organizations in the world. They all had experience there. They had staff there, uh, local staff and international staff. They um, had credibility, so they, they were trusted and accepted, and they had protection. Um, these are dangerous places, so yeah. I'm not suggesting this is for someone to just do and, and did you have it, training before you went into to war torn areas? I mean, did they give you any kind of guidance or training before you went out there, or was was it kind of flying by instinct? Well, we we traveled with some of their staff and and volunteer. You know, I was a board member. I chaired the boards of most of these organizations, and um, we certainly had guidelines, and we had guidelines of how to proceed. You know, in Azerbaijan, which was just a horrendous situation for women and girls, I sat in a tent in a circle of teenage girls who had been orphaned in the war with, with Armenia and were traveling with other Azeris, and they were kind of in a tent camp where they had just a few, you know, sheep and um, dogs, and I don't I don't know where they, they were 
basically living off the land. And these girls confessed to us that they were being raped by the men in the camp. The reason that came out is because our guidelines for meeting with um, women and girls in situations like this in refugee situation, the first question you ask is, do you feel safe? Mm. You know, you don't say, have you been raped or has anybody? It's just, do you feel safe here? That's a very important guideline. And, um, you know, we do a lot of listening. You have to be very comfortable with stillness because sometimes the words don't come, the stories don't come, the confessions don't come. But you just need to allow, give the space and allow for that opening to happen. Because um, what we can offer is protection in the future, plus, you know, the supplies and so on that they need. But there has to be a bond of trust. And I guess my preparation um, as being a mother and spending a lot of time, you know, I was a Girl Scout leader, a soccer team mother. You know, I did this art program. I volunteered in Head Start in Pasadena for many years. I love the Head Start program. That's a kind of training too. But in my case, the mother experience was very, very strong and powerful and gave me a lot of confidence. So, oh my goodness. I want to talk about what started you off writing the book. You actually uh, broke your ankle. Yes. Right. Well, you know, I have, every time I came back from um, these journeys, I would find venues where I could tell about them because I just was driven to make people care. I wanted people to understand what I'd experienced and to care. Um, Usually the first venue would be at my own church and, you know, synagogues. And I would write reports about everything I experienced for the organizations, send my reports and my photos. And people, the first time I did that, I was speaking um, at a venue where there were a lot of smart people and I thought I needed to know all the facts and so on. And I realized that it's really not the facts. It's the stories that make people care and make people understand what the situation is. And people would say to me, you should write a book. <laughs> Why don't you write a book? Well, I was just too busy, you know, living it, you know, living what would become a book. But I also just had too busy a life and the Mm -hmm. idea of sitting down and writing a book. But uh, about um, six years ago, I broke my ankle very severely. I did it the the boring old fashioned way, falling down steps and slamming into a stone. I broke all three bones on my ankle and spent a month at Mayo Hospital having it um, plated and screwed. And that gave me the time. But I, in my wheelchair, I could access my my file drawers and what i haven't mentioned to you is that everywhere i went i carried spiral notebooks i wrote down every detail this was my investigative reporting experience and i took photos and i would write in my journal what the photo was details about it i wrote down how things smelled you know what i saw in the corner of a room what a child was was doing when just little details like that that you think you're going to remember, but you don't. Mm-mm. And yeah. I kept everything. So I would I love every that trip, you included pictures of all that in the book, yeah. like in some of the in-between chapters uh, with the flat lays that you've got 
images of your your notebooks uh combined with some photos and objects and uh yeah really cool those those collages um, yeah we use those as as uh, dividers between the sections like the balkans to the caucuses yeah. and so on um but I wanted to show that I did really write all this down. <laughs> and I have, fi I have file drawers. I'm sitting in my study right now that are horizontal under my desk so I could reach them from my wheelchair. And I kept everything. I kept plane tickets and hotel stuffs, And I kept newspaper articles that I'd read about what was going on at the time. And I I'd always meant to go through and, you know, clean out those files. Thank goodness I never did. But because when I was in my wheelchair, I could come into my study and find a file, and I just started writing whatever that trip was. I sort of wrote the book from the inside out. <laughs> I started in Bosnia because the former Yugoslavia, that war just kind of obsessed me. And I I just started writing. And I had already told many of the, the best stories I had told in public speaking. But writing a book is very different. Mm -hmm. So I, I got the basic um chapters sort of outlined and and written but then i put it down because i got i healed and i started running around again of course along comes covid and during the pandemic we isolated at our home and i took over the dining room table and i spent two full years every single day writing all day long and I, without that time, I never would have gotten it done. And of course, it, with anything you write, the most important element is editing. I had a couple of very excellent professional editors who helped me, and we were sending things back and forth, you know, on Dropbox or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, but that the time, the time of the pandemic is when it really came together. And then the big push to get it published came from the the current. Russian-Ukrainian war, right? Because I, I now we got to go kind of take a quick dip back to one of your early trips was in the Ukraine and right. and you made some significant uh, friendships and relationships yes. with the people you met at that time. Yes. In 1989, um, I was invited to join a group of 100 Americans, a few Europeans in there also, um, who were invited by the U Ukrainian Peace Committee. You know, this is still the height of the, the Cold War in the Soviet Union. And Ukraine was the first of the republics to really begin um, agitating for um, freedom and independence. When Gorbachev was president, Gorbachev loosened up things a bit with Glasnost and Perestroika, and, you know, people were um, confident to begin reaching out a little bit but only only in the capital city of kiev did it was called kiev at the time did we see that but this peace committee formed and they reached out to a peace committee that was actually in connecticut people that uh, had roots ties to ukraine and asked if they would put together a delegation of 100 americans and bring them to kiev uh, in August of 1989, and we traveled together on a boat, 100 Americans, 100 Soviets. And uh, we went from Kiev to Odessa, and we got off the boat at every port and went into cities that had never seen Americans. And, you know, I realized at the first stop that it was such a responsibility 
to represent America to people who had probably heard all this negative propaganda about us for years and years. And I was a little nervous about what we'd find. We stepped off the boat down to the dock and at every single city, it was a fiesta. People were dressed in native costumes. They were dancing, they were singing, handing out flowers. I had brought duffel bags full of gifts to give out small things. Um, you know, the girls got, you know, lip gloss and things like that. Eyeshadow lip gloss. Um, you know, solar batteries were very popular. I had just a whole variety of gifts, but they also gave gifts. And we, and I being the investigative reporter had my journal and I took pictures everywhere, but I also had people write down in their, in the Cyrillic alphabet, their name and address very carefully and identified what they looked like. So I could match the pictures to the photos. Wow. And um, when I got home, I wrote letters to every single, it's always the follow, the follow-up really matters. You don't just have the experience. It's what you do with what you got, right? Mm -hmm. So I would write letters and enclose pictures to everyone I met. And sometimes um, I'd send my family Christmas card or something like that. Um, and a return envelope if they wanted to write to me. And then I became in correspondence with a lot of people over there. I developed these friendships. And so then I wrote them the next year that I was going to return because they did a second cruise in August of 1990. And at that time, I took my daughter with me and my brother. My brother played the guitar, knew all the American folk songs. My daughter had just graduated with her master's in international studies, and she was very facile with languages. She was speaking Russian in no time. Um, and we went, we met all these people and every dock we came to, people would be out there with signs that said Jane Olson because I had written to them all. Oh my goodness. It was amazing. You got to so, feel like a celebrity at that point. That's funny. Yeah. So wow. the boys, because my Christmas card was a, a Mother Goose nursery rhymes, they called me Mother Goose. And, and I have all these goslings, teenagers all over Ukraine. Uh, I kept in touch with them. Uh, this was before the internet. It was before email, before cell phones. Uh, but now I'm hearing from them by email, my goslings in Ukraine. You know, it's, they're professional men. You know, they're mm -hmm. 40s and 50s. Yeah. And, you know, computer scientists and engineers and whatever. And they're, they're sending me pictures of themselves putting on camouflage uniforms and guns and going out to defend their cities. Mm and very big uh, details of what they're experiencing there. But the most gratifying thing is, is every single time I hear from any of them, it's thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you to the Americans for believing in us, for supporting us, for sending military weapons for all of the, uh, the food and medicine and relief materials we've sent to them. They love the United States, absolutely love the United States. And I'm so grateful. I mean, you can see that with President Zelensky. So I'm hearing from them um, when their cities are being bombed. If they haven't lost faith, they're going to fight the, to the end. Yeah, it's it's incredible. Well, let's let's hope that the love carries the day on that one. Uh, it's a tough one.
what what would you say to to a mom who is you know 50ish maybe looking at you know the empty nest and wondering what's next what gives you joy what touches your heart good answer <laughs> that's yes i'm a believer because it's not all sacrifice i mean mm -hmm. i i got such incredible joy and satisfaction from everything i did it's you know it's not just altruistic it's a two-way two street mm. um what are your talents and I would also say that look around your community. You don't have to travel. You don't have to cross borders to find something that, you know, if you have an impulse to serve, there's plenty of opportunity and plenty of need right around you. And that's your the classroom of learning how to be a humanitarian right there. I mean, if I hadn't done all the work with homeless populations, with Head Start children, all, all the various things that I did uh, in the Pasadena and Los Angeles area, I would have not felt equipped to do what I did abroad. Well, thank you I mean, for it's... all your work. I'm, and thank you for this book. I mean, oh. it's, uh, it is, a, it's, it's a beautiful book, first of all. I'm so glad that you did it the way you did it with photos throughout that are right there in the midst of, I mean, the photos that you're, they reference exactly where you are in the book. It's beautifully done. Where where can people get a hold of this, Jane? The website is worldcitizenthebook.com. Obviously, there were a lot of worldcitizen.com. So worldcitizenthebook.com is my website. And you can also uh, get it through Amazon. Um, and World Citizen Journeys of a Humanitarian. So the other reason I published right now, Yvonne, it's not just the fact that Ukraine has broken out. Um, the other reason I felt so strongly about getting this out now is because of the polarization in our world. You know, all of the hate speech and anger and judgment that, that we're seeing all over the world, but in the United States, it just breaks my heart. Yeah. You know, the divisiveness, the, um, the othering of people, so dangerous. And yeah. I, in my book, what I've, what I've done, I guess, consciously, but also just by the telling of the stories is to put a face on the other, you know, on the vulnerable, displaced people, on the throwaway people. I've, I've um, portrayed their humanity. And when we, when we judge and other people, what we're doing is dehumanizing them. We're saying they're not worth our care, or attention, or support. And I think that at this time, um, we need to understand the whole concept of Spaceship Earth that the astronauts taught us the first time they went, they circled the planet, Spaceship Earth. We've learned from the COVID-19 pandemic one vital lesson, no one is safe until everyone's safe. We have to protect every single person. And just because you've had all your vaccines and you stay isolated, the virus is going to find a way to mutate and pose a danger to everyone. 
but also um, as Greta and the young people of her generation are teaching us, we're all extremely vulnerable to climate change. These extremes of weather are accelerating and growing and growing, and we need to work together as one human family. It's the human beings who are responsible for the climate change, my generation especially, the uh, desecration of the earth, the exploitation of resources, um, the exploitation of you know, the water, the air, the uh, contamination that we've caused. And what we have to understand is we all as one human family are responsible for the plants and animals. You know, if we don't turn things around, if we don't save our precious earth, it's, it's really on us. And on, we all have to work together. What if instead of comparing how many guns and bombs and missiles and so on we have, what if we compared our, the quality of our education, of our health care, the, the safety and security of our elderly and children, how we care for the vulnerable? What if we looked at social justice and economic issues and measured ourselves in, in terms of the health of our societies instead of how many weapons we have? We're all the same. We're all one. I believe that. I believe we're all connected energetically. And what hurts one hurts all. And what helps one, I think, benefits all of humanity. And we need to work on the on the healthy healing side. Tremendous. You are you are an inspiration, I will say. Thank thank you so much for being with me today. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Well, thanks a million. Thank you, Jane. Well, there you have it. I find myself asking over and over again, how do people like Jane do the work they do? How do you stay hopeful when you've seen so much pain and suffering in the world? The answer lies at the end of her book in a letter to her children, where she says, always shine your light, understanding that love is the operating energy of the universe. My great wish is that this conversation gives you hope and maybe lights a fire in you to do what you can where you are with what you have. Hey, by the way, did you know that this year in December marks the 75th anniversary of the Declaration of Human Rights, which was adopted by the UN General Assembly in Paris on December 10th, 1948? And leading up to this celebration of the anniversary, there's an outreach campaign called Human Rights 75, which seeks to rejuvenate the Declaration of Human Rights, demonstrate how it meets the needs of our times or can meet the needs of our times and advance its promise of freedom, equality, and justice for all. If you want more information about Human Rights 75 or want to get a copy of Jane's book, I have links to all the things for you in the show notes. You can just go to latebloomerliving.com and look for episode 138. Oh, and here's your reminder to save the date for next Tuesday, April 11th, which is the next Zoom gathering for the Midlife Uprising community. I hope you'll join us at 9 p.m. Eastern time. You can go to latebloomerliving.com forward slash community to get more information. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you have a fantastic week. Stay safe and well. Talk soon.